The scripture reading this morning is from 1 Samuel 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him. For we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Thank you so much for reading, Roger. Imagine with me that you are with a couple colleagues at work, and maybe they're looking at a business report, or maybe you work in the medical field, and you're collaborating and interpreting some piece of data or perhaps a medical situation. Likely what could happen is someone says, this is what I'm seeing, and another person says, actually, I see things a little a little different from how you're seeing them. Or two friends are talking about a situation. And as they talk, one of them says, I don't know that you're looking at the same thing I am because what I see, I see really differently. Often we see things from different perspectives, which is fine. But what if a perspective is wrong? Or what if you're seeing something and it's from a very, very limited perspective? What if you can't see all, all the data? What if you can't see, what if you don't have all the facts? Well, that would definitely affect what a person sees and how they might 
interpret what they see. And I mention that because I believe the story of David in general and 1 Samuel 16, what we're looking at today, as we continue in the life of David, I think this is talking about how men and women see things, how humans view things, our perspective. I get that especially from 1 Samuel 16, 7. And so Roger read it a moment ago, but I think this verse stands out, especially the second part of the verse. The first part of the verse talks about don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. But then it says, for the Lord sees not as man sees. I think this is worth memorizing. I think this is worth bearing into our heart and into our memory. The Lord sees not as man sees because man looks on the outward appearance. Hum- humans look on what is visible. But the Lord looks on the heart. And I want to trace that theme of we don't see things exactly like God sees. I want to trace that theme, especially emphasizing that God looks on the heart. And, and really, this whole chapter begins with humans not seeing things as God sees them, or at least the potential for that happening. So right there in the first verse, what was read a moment ago, we find Samuel grieving. Samuel's grieving over Saul. And the Lord says, you don't need to grieve any longer because I'm, I have a plan and I'm working out my plan. When you dig a little bit into what Samuel is thinking, and we'll go into the background in just a moment, you ask the question like, what does the situation look like to Samuel? And in the beginning of 1 Samuel 16, to Samuel, what he sees is life unraveling. What he sees is life unraveling. What do I mean? Well, he's grieving because it looks like God's work has taken a major step backward if it isn't off the rails altogether. Maybe a little bit of background information because we are jumping into the story of David So many, many years before 1 Samuel 16, so we're going back into the previous chapters, Samuel had been directed by God to anoint, which was just really a symbol of authorization, anoint Saul as king over all of Israel. And so Samuel did it. And Samuel, as a respected prophet, had the favor of all the people. It's like he threw his weight and whatever political capital he had, he threw it behind Saul. But then he watched Saul make poor decision after poor decision. He watched Saul when confronted with his poor decisions, when confronted with his rebellion, when confronted with his sin. He watched Saul become defensive and and try to justify and excuse his behavior. So whether it's in 1 Samuel 13 or 1 Samuel 15, Samuel cares about the glory of God and the mission of God, but God made it clear to Samuel, Saul will no longer be king. I am moving on. But Samuel grieved over what could have been, grieved over what should have been, and he can't really move on. What Samuel sees is a mess. The leader of God's people and all of this unraveling. He sees a reason to grieve. What he doesn't see is that through all this, God is is directing, God is working. 
What does the next step look like? Well, the next step looks like Samuel going to Bethlehem and he's told, you're going to anoint the next king there. And again, normally it was priests that were anointed, but here God is going to authorize a new king, another king. And God is directing things. And, and here again, the way Samuel looks at it is he's afraid. So we have some pretty powerful emotions going on even in the first couple of verses. So in the, the first verse, Samuel is grieving and, and grief is powerful. And in the second verse here, Samuel is afraid. He says, well, if Saul hears about it, Saul directs the armies. Saul has like the intelligence agencies at his disposal. If, if I go there, he's going to find out I'm anointing another king. That's my life on the line. And God speaks to him. This is what you're seeing, Samuel. But I am at work. Samuel sees that the solution would put him in harm's way. And he's alarmed and concerned. Samuel sees a reason to be afraid. But wait a minute, wait a minute. God is his refuge and strength. God is the one that can protect and direct what's going on. And he does so adequately every time. God sees all of this. He's working out his plan. Not one word that God has promised will fail. Grief and fear are very real, but God is greater. And I I think this is an invitation for us. Whatever you're seeing, if you're seeing your life unravel, and maybe it's because of grief, or maybe it's because of fear, without diminishing either one of those emotions and the real influence, impact they have, Is it possible that you're not seeing things from the perspective that God has? So could it be, could it be that God is calling you to realize even in your grief that he is good and you have a future? I don't, I don't mean to be heard in a wrong way. I I don't believe God is just calling us in grief and in fear just to suck it up. I do believe that God will call us in those moments to see Your life is not done. There is a future. There is hope. Could God be calling you even in your fears to realize in your fear, he is your protector and your guide and your faithful friend? I wonder how much grief is bottled up in our hearts when we gather together each Sunday. I wonder how much fear is bottled up in our hearts. Sometimes I I wonder, are, are you suffering? Are you carrying it? And could it be that God's grace to you in this moment, maybe in just a few moments after church, would be to talk to someone, to pray with someone, to to maybe take a step forward. You say, well, I'm a private person. I just don't talk about my fears and what's bothering me to other people. And maybe God is calling you to take another step out of that, no matter how private you may have been in the past. Calling you to get a perspective, and maybe that perspective will come as someone prays for you in your fear, prays with you, walks alongside you. And as God's God's grace to you in that moment. You see, we don't always see things like we should see them. Samuel could look at life and see it unraveling. He's fearful about what the future might mean. But God's perspective is significantly different. And and Samuel, to his credit, listens and obeys. And he goes down to Bethlehem 
to anoint a king. And by the time we get into verse 6, we have Samuel evaluating the sons of Jesse and trying to discern, okay, God sent me down here with the mission. He gets over his fear. He gets over his worry. And he comes down. And, and what is the situation when he arrives in Bethlehem and he's talking to Jesse and his sons? What does the situation look like? Well, what Samuel sees and what we see as well is outward appearances. And frankly, at the beginning, I think what Samuel is seeing among Jesse's sons is some attractive solutions. So if he's fearful, what happens now that Saul's getting the boot going off the scene? What, what happens now? And, and Samuel is introduced to Jesse's sons. And son number one, Eliab, seems to like resonate with him. And he sees him and he, he thinks, well, you know what? I think Israel's going to be okay. If that's the one, then we're okay. He's strong and he's powerful and he, he, he's tall. And this is, this is someone who can lead God's people. And, and the outward appearances tell him, I think we're going to be all right. But the outward appearance is not what matters to God. The outward appearance is not what matters to God. As a matter of fact, God rejects son number one that looks so promising. God hasn't chosen this one. You go back to verse seven again and you get that reminder, don't you? No, no, I've rejected him. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. Samuel, you're coming to your conclusions based on the outward appearance. And if Samuel needed to hear that word, we need to hear that word today. A major caution to us because we we look on the outward appearance. We care about the outward appearance. There's a moment where someone begins to care how they look. For anybody who's ever been a parent of like a, a middle school boy, you're grateful there's a moment where someone cares how they look and personal hygiene becomes a priority. This is a good thing, right? But it dawns on us. A lot of times it's attracted to peers or someone of the opposite sex. But that's just the beginning. If our culture does anything, we celebrate the outward appearance. We celebrate image looking a certain way. So there's all sorts of products to make yourself and to project an image that looks better. And and certainly those are like for your physical appearance. And, and, And there are apps, there are technology that will help you even look better, or at least project a better image. How many social media apps are are mainly there for you to project an appearance, project most often a, a happy highlight reel of your life? And you say, well, I'm not, I don't, I don't really do social media And then I would think, how many conversations are you in? How many conversations am I in where we care enough about our appearance that we could be talking about all sorts of random stuff and we drop in, just kind of conveniently drop in something that makes us look good, doesn't really have relevance to any sort of story, doesn't help advance anything, but we just want other people to know, I did this, I I am this, I've accomplished this, and just so they know kind of who we are and they have a right appearance of us outward appearance. And sometimes we go, I'm not for that. And we want to maintain how, how above it all we are. We, we don't get into that outward appearance thing. We're just, we're over that. We're so over that. And we want to project that. It, it happens, doesn't it? 
This is, this is how we work. It's not a rich issue. It's not an elite issue. It's all of us. This is a season where there are awards and names are going to be called academic awards, athletic awards, the most this and the most that. We like for people to notice the image we project, but we're reminded in 1 Samuel, God doesn't see like we see. God sees the heart. And we miss that all too often. Despite how little it might matter to us, the heart always matters a lot to God. Despite how little it might matter to you, it always matters a lot to God. So Saul's heart mattered to God, whatever the appearance was. And and Saul was all about the public opinion polls. He wanted to be seen in a favorable light. He wanted to keep everything controlled and and didn't want the message to spiral out of his control. Even when he's called out, he, he has excuses that make himself look good and project a good image. God cares about that heart. God cares about the heart of David, David who would be responsive to God. And when he would sin and and go out of bounds, he would repent without excuse and turn back to God. God sees our heart. God knows what's going on in our heart. And that's so important because we misread what's going on in our heart. Our, our Our heart monitors aren't calibrated right because we, we think It's all about the image, and sometimes we're just not very discerning about what's going on in our hearts. We look at others, and we give attention, and we're impressed with the outside and the image that's portrayed while the inside might be rotten. I wonder how many relationships, how many friendships started off because someone was impressed with the appearance, and they looked amazing, and they looked cute, and they looked interesting. And you kind of like how how you are when you're seen with them. You like how people recognize when you're seen with this person and that matters to you so much. But how many costly mistakes have been, have, have, have been a part of someone's life because of these sorts of priorities that we make on outward appearance? We know outward appearance doesn't tell us everything because someone gets an award for like the, the best character or something like that. And we know all the people giving the award, they, they don't know this person like I know them. Because if they knew him like I knew him, they'd never get that award. We know, we know the heart matters. We just forget it sometimes. We ought to make a mental note here to not slobber and fawn all over the people that seem beautiful and powerful and influential and act like they're the only ones worth listening to. All the while missing what God might teach us and the broken, and the vulnerable, and the lowly. God uses the weak. This is what he does. And it it blows our mind how he does that. In a culture where the firstborn was everything, God often would choose to use the secondborn. And here, he's going to choose number eight in that family. Just to make sure outward appearance is broken down, and what matters, what we see clearly, is the heart. God can deal with our heart, but my fear is we care much too much about our appearance. God cares about whether in your heart you love him. God cares about in your heart whether you're sensitive to his spirit's work. God cares about in your heart whether you love your neighbor as yourself. God cares about your heart whether you're moved when you say, all I have is Christ 
or whether you've just grown so over it, it doesn't even make a difference to you. God cares about those moments in your heart. God cares about whether you've grown hard-hearted and cynical. God cares about whether your heart is encouraged when you see God working in a particular way, even if it's not in your life, if it's in the lives of others, if it's in the life of our church. God cares about what's going on in your heart. The whole scene becomes a spectacle. It's somewhat, there are these moments in scripture where you kind of envision yourself in them, and it's humorous. In verse 6, so we got everybody coming before, before Samuel, and Again, we're reminded he thought, Eliab, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. In verse 7, we're told, no, it's not him. Verse 8, then Jesse calls Abinadab and made him pass. Nope, not that one. Verse 9, then Jesse made Shema pass by, and it's not that one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And we still don't even have David's name written in Scripture yet. Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord hasn't chosen these Verse 11, then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? That had to be a highly embarrassing moment, I would think, for Jesse. Ah, oh, there's this one. Ah, you know, I, I didn't get it. He's the youngest. I don't know that that's the, I'm not sure. Someone, someone's written about it and said, if we were to put it kind of in our, in our day and time, tending the sheep, maybe something like, I, I, she's babysitting. He's bagging groceries somewhere. I, you know, I, we, I don't know that we, we could get him, but he's like a long way away. I... And then Samuel says, no, 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 get him right now. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, let's get him. Let's get him. Let's bring him in here. And amazingly, this is the one, isn't it? The Lord says in verse 12, arise, anoint him, for this is he. And then like a big hinge of scripture is right here in verses 13 and 14. Because Samuel takes the horn of oil, again, this symbolic presence of the Lord. He anoints him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. And the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And a harmful spirit from the Lord torments him. Do you notice, like, the transition there? One person is on the rise. Another person is falling. And if you only read this passage, you, you go, so a uh, spirit of the Lord comes, spirit from the Lord and torments this man Saul as God just like putting a, a, a curse or a hex on somebody and it just all goes bad for him. Is this just arbitrary? And if you read previously, and we don't have time to get into 1 Samuel 15 and 14 and 13, but no, no, this is the path Saul was going. Saul rejects the Lord. Saul makes excuses. Saul rejects the Lord. He makes excuses. I think Saul doesn't realize the damage he is doing to his own soul. It's a word of warning here. The more you rebel and excuse rather than respond and repent, the more you open yourselves up to go to places you never want to go spiritually the more your heart gets hardened. The more you give an advantage, a place to Satan and his work. We already read earlier in scripture that he is like prowling around like a lion would to devour somebody. We're not ignorant of how he works. 
And the more you like close your heart off to God, are, are you not putting yourself in a more vulnerable position spiritually? That's why Proverbs would say, guard your heart with all diligence because out of your heart comes life. This is where life comes from. Saul closes his heart off to the Lord and that's going to reap consequences. David's been anointed, Saul's been rejected. And so the question is, what will happen next? Well, if you've read the Bible, you have the spoiler alert, right? David's going to become king. That, that is going to happen. But the rest of 1 Samuel deals with how and when is that going to happen? How is that going to happen? I just want, I want us to see the first steps in that unfolding in verse 14. So again, if you have your Bibles open, look at verse 14. It says, again, the spirit of the Lord departs from Saul. That harmful spirit torments him. Saul's servants said to him, behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. So would you let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the the lyre. Maybe this would be a remedy, that there would be some sort of music that would help. And when that harmful spirit from God is upon you, this man who is skillful in playing, he can play and you will be well. And Saul says to his servants, provide for me a man and he can play well and bring him to me. So one of the young men answered, behold, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Don't you see how God's weaving the story? And he's skillful in playing, but he also, and now we just read like David's resume. I mean, God's been preparing this man. He's a man of valor. He's a man of war. He's prudent in speech. He's a man of good presence. Oh, and the Lord, most importantly, the Lord is with him. Saul sends messengers to Jesse, says, you send me David, your son, who's with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine, a young goat, and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul. And a lot of the rest of 1 Samuel is kind of what happens with David and Saul. David enters Saul's service. Saul loved him greatly. And he became his armor bearer. Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David remain in my service. He's found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was on Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well and the harmful spirit departed from him. When I think, okay, David's supposed to be king. How are we going to get him there? And you read Saul has a demonic spirit, it seems like, oppressing him. And actually, if I'm writing the story in the way that makes most sense to me, I think I would say, I think there's a better way than to bring David into the house of Saul. I can imagine a lot of bad things coming out of that. And the fact is, this shows us one more thing we see. And that is we see the quickest, easiest, clearest path for our lives. That's what we see. We see, like, if, I, if I'm going to have a better future and a better life, I, I want it to be quick and easy and clear. So it seems like the best way for God to accomplish his purposes would be the one that takes just the least amount of time. And oh, by the way, I mean, we don't tell God what to do, but it should be as hassle-free as possible. And it should be clear, so we should have little doubts or confusion as to what God's doing at any given time. Yeah, and that's exactly how David's story does not go. 
It doesn't seem very quick, easy, or clear. This is a story that takes place. We talked about this last week over time. So we just draw a straight line. Okay, David's supposed to be king. Well, let's let him be king. And God says he'll be a shepherd. And then he'll play the harp. And then he'll be an armor bearer. Then he'll be a soldier. Then he'll be a fugitive. And eventually he'll be king. Why the delay? God, what are you doing? God, what are you doing sending David into the court of a deranged king? What purposes? This is going to be nothing but a hassle for David. Why bring him there? And and why would you give David, why would you, this is a man after your heart, why would you have him experience things and circumstances that are going to breed doubt and confusion? Let's not forget, it is David who says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's David who asked the Lord more, probably more time in scripture than any other person, how long, O Lord? It's David who has plenty of places in the Psalms where he says, why, why? Why would you do that? Why would you do that to David? So if we want to kind of dial up and go, Siri, what's the, what's the easiest, clearest, quickest route to being king? Siri may give you an answer, but that question doesn't matter so much to God. He has another plan. So hold on a minute. What, what might God be doing here? Well, in the continuous chaos, you know what David's going to see? David's going to see ungodly, self-serving leadership, and he's going to learn the harmful consequences that come from ungodly, self-serving leadership. David's going to sit in the court of the king, and he's going to see how high the stakes are when the king's heart is not bent toward the Lord. Every decision Saul makes will have consequences. And what an opportunity. How else would David have got that opportunity? He's a shepherd. How else would he have gotten that opportunity to see firsthand what life in the king's court looks like? Yeah, God had that in mind. And in the depressing nightmare that unfolds, David will meet Jonathan, the most loyal friend David could find. What a gift that was to David. What a gift the story is to us. In this circus ride, David is going to be more clearly established as the leader and the trusted and respected and desired person, the desired king. Others are going to begin to take notice of him. That never would have happened unless God orchestrates the circumstances. And in this painful struggle, we're going to hear David's heart for God. We're going to hear David say, here's my doubts and here's my fears. And in the midst of those struggles, we're going to hear things like, the Lord is my shepherd. I I don't lack for anything. It's written out all this. We look at this and go, God, how can you use this? And then we look back at the story and say, David never would have been David without this. We look at the outward appearance We think life should be all about easy and clear and quick. Maybe that's what you've been praying a lot of. You haven't been praying so much like your will be done, but you've kind of been praying if you're honest about it. Like, God, if you could just like make your will my will. Like and make my will be done. And by that, I kind of mean your will, but I really mean more my will. 
Or, or maybe, maybe more and more, you, you feel like, I, I kind of joined up on God's team to be free from anything hard. And it doesn't seem like God's doing that. God has better plans. And I don't say this with like a calloused heart. But I mean it when I say God loves you too much to bypass the hard stuff. You grow too much there. And you may have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But it's there unlike any other place where you learn that the Lord is with me. He never leaves. Not even there. He loves you too much to make everything just immediately clear and make sense to you. You wouldn't realize, you wouldn't realize how much you need to trust. And by that, I mean, you would not be living in reality. You would think your brain could figure God out. And that's not the case. But God decides to lead you in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He loves you too much to make everything just quick and immediate. Because the the best things and the best relationships develop over time. We know that. His plan is eternal, even as we're anxious after about 30 30 seconds of praying. His plan's eternal. That's why surely goodness and mercy will follow you, will chase after you all the days of your life, and you'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You will have healing. You will have rest. You will have relief. You will have peace. There will come a day when you won't sin anymore. And that day is coming, but in God's good time, he's doing something now that you may not completely understand. Because, wait a minute, we see things not like God sees them. All over the story of David, you're going to see God's grace, but you're going to have to see David wait and be patient. You're going to see David walk through some hard, hard things, and you're going to see The Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons and daughters to glory. You're going to see grace unmeasured, love untold. We don't see things as God sees them. We're impressed with the outward appearance far more than we should be. I hope that's drilled into your heart. And I want to ask you for a moment to think about it very, very personally. Maybe you're counting on your outward appearance, what everybody sees to get you pretty far in life. Maybe it's impressive. Maybe it gets you pretty far. But how far will it get you for eternity and how far will it get you in God's presence? God looks on the heart and you say, well, that's all right because I got a pretty good heart. Like, I got a good heart. And is that true? Well, my heart's in the right place. But then I begin to evaluate my own heart. I'd imagine that most of us are similar in this. My heart can be filled with selfishness and pride and apathy and jealousy and anger and bitterness and mixed motives, greed, and then someone calls me on it, I'm defensive. Is my heart really in that good of a place? Definitely isn't all the time. But you see... God came in Christ Jesus to give us a new heart, a renewed heart. And when we turn from everything else, we trust in him. We have a new heart because of the work of Jesus. And speaking of like outward appearance, there's nothing that looks like super about the cross. That looks like just an absolute meltdown of God's plan. 
But wait a minute, God's, God sees something that we would not see on outward appearance. And that is his son giving his life for us. God knows how this story is written. The death, the resurrection, and the reign of Jesus Christ. So I'm asking us all to get beyond the outward appearance and say, if the heart matters to God, where is my heart with God? Can we just think about that question for a few moments? Let me ask you to bow your head. Where is my heart in relationship to God? Where is it today? Will you place your faith? Will you place your trust in him? I want to pray for those that you say, I need a new heart. I want to encourage you to call out to the Lord. In prayer, say, Lord, I can't clean myself up. I can't impress you. God, work in my heart. Oh, Father, do that for your glory. We're grateful for the promises we have in Scripture. I pray that we, as a church, would not be so impressed with outward appearances. We would begin to get your eyes on our lives and on the lives of those that you're working on around us. Father, we pray that you would be glorified by what you see as you see our hearts, not not in our own strength, but you give a new heart. So do that for many in this room. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.